0: Welcome, welcome, welcome geeks and nerds, girls and boys to a brand new edition of Geek to Me Radio Tonight We've got Brian Box Brown talking about his book, The He-Man Effect, the 80s toy market, how they cornered kids with advertising. Later on, we'll talk with master storyteller Louise Simons about her runs on Steel X-Factor, New Mutants, and more. Stand by. We're talking TV, comics and movies, and video games. And if you don't know, Star Trek from Star Wars will try to explain and drug doctors, we'll hop St. Louis area tonight, listening to us on the big 550 KTRS. Hello to all of you. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you're streaming us out there on the web or on the KTRS app, we appreciate you listening there. And of course, if you're hearing us after the fact in the podcast form, we do appreciate you finding subscribing there and hopefully listening as regularly as you can after the show airs live on KTRS. Uh, We'll tell you more about our new sponsor, Citizens Debt Relief. If you've got a bunch of credit card debt, this company is going to tell you exactly how to handle it. We'll tell you more about them and our other sponsors, of course, Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau and Bugs Comics and Games coming up in the hour. Uh, but first, two great interviews. We're going to kick it off with my first guest, Brian Box Brown. Here's that. My next guest is a cartoonist, an illustrator, a New York Times bestselling writer, an Eisner award winner, and he's got a new book out now called The He-Man Effect, How American Toy Makers Sold You Your Childhood. And boy, I was one <laughs> of those children. Brian Box Brown, how are you? Oh, very good.
1: Very good. Thank you for having me on the
0: show. Of course. As soon as I saw this, I can't remember, it was like a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. It's all wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey, but I saw somehow someone I follow retweeted your book. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is this? And the more I dug into it, I reached out and I knew I had to talk to you about this because this was like my childhood, this was everything that I saw. And we saw the Netflix special, the toys that made us, which tangentially yes. kind of taps into some of the stuff you're talking about. Talk a little bit uh, about wh- where the germ for this idea for the book started with you. So um, it it kind of started on a,
1: like a very uh, earnest way um, where I was literally like uh, looking back on my own, uh, you know, stuff. Like I wanted to get all these old toys. Like, um, well, Actually, it initially started, I think, uh, because I was at a lot of comic conventions mm. and, um, you know, at these, a lot of the big comic conventions, um, you know, I, was, I remember specifically going to this one in Chicago a bunch of times where, um, you know, they'd have, they'd be so big and there's so much stuff. And then, and there's always like a section that's like vintage toys <laughs> yeah, and, um, and, you know, cause there's old comics, there's all, you know, a million things. And uh, you know, I so I was always like f- finding myself in those areas trying to get stuff, and I started buying some old toys. And um, you know, I, I'd also like it, it would be like at, on the Sunday of the show after I had like sold a bunch of books and stuff, and I'd be walking around and I'd be like, whoa, they have like eight battle beasts here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: probably all of them. Um, so it, it's really kind of started that way. And then, you know, I bought like a Sears catalog um, from like 1986. Yeah, the
0: old wish books.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, that that like is almost as good as getting all the toys like, in a way. <laughs> like, like that was actually how I experienced most of the toys. was so like I didn't, you know, I didn't have like a lot of the stuff that I want now is stuff that I just didn't get when I was a kid right I just want you know what I mean and so um I think I started you know I I started kind of realizing that like these people at the conventions and stuff are like capitalizing on advertising that's like 38 years old or whatever it was at the time and um I was like this is you know that's how powerful the advertising was like we're still like you know we still are spent, We're probably spending more money our generation is probably spending more money in in our adulthood on on these action figures and these properties than we did in in childhood in a way yeah um and so uh you know but I was like what's the story though I was like there's no I was just like what there's a lot of toys that I like them like <laughs> what's the story there um <laughs> So uh you know, then I, I it sometimes these um you know, coming up with these ideas like you're kind of like half researching for a book for like ten years before you even realize that you were researching for a book. Like you're just kind of like hmm. following your own interests in a way. And and uh at some point I was like, Oh well this this is actually like the thing, like this is how you know th- 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 this advertising thing is is you know this is such a powerful like emotion you know this nostalgia thing um this buy you know th- th- the wish what was like whatever 50 bucks or something and it's a catalog from a store that's out of business yeah.
0: you know <laughs>
1: from 30 years ago you know so it's like this you know, it's motivates people right like this powerful feeling of nostalgia and um Yeah, then just kind of like rolled into this book about advertising and nostalgia, and you know how that gets co opted, and how you know how how this this kind of like has warped our culture a little bit.
0: And in the book, the He-Man effect, uh, you kind of make the point of the you know some of these early people tapped into this. Walt Disney, of course, being chief among them, uh, stumbled upon, tapped on, whatever, and also you know 30 years later from him the executives at Kenner and things like that realized well, that history plus psychology equals nostalgia which I, when i think about it i'm doing this radio show now i double majored in psychology and political science history so i basically majored in nostalgia growing going to yeah. college but it, it it's i'd never seen it put in those kind of terms before and that's really What it is, is that people want their childhood back. And I think that's, you know, people want comfort food. This is something that my mom made for me when I was sick. We like watching Bob Barker and having seven up, you know, when we're on the couch, that nostalgia is just so vital. It's like, it's like
1: comfort food, but yeah, comfort
0: TV. Exactly, and it's one of those things too. Like I can open a can of Play-Doh, and that smell takes me right back uh-huh. to being a kid. And the same right. with the He-Man figures had a specific smell to them as well. Especially if you get yeah. the Stinkor figure, for example. Right,
2: um,
1: yeah, they made the Stinkor figure by they would they put patchouli oil right into the plastic. Ah. That's why, that's why when you get those, they still faintly still smell like patchouli. <laughs>
0: So with the all this the stuff they had, the merchandising wise, because we saw this in the eighties, and again, I'm an eighties kid. I grew up with this. Uh mm-hmm. you know, we had the three prong attack. It was the cartoon, the comic book, and the toy line. G. I. Oh, Joe yeah. did it, He Man did it, Transformers, they all all these yeah. Power Lords had a three issue limited series from DC yeah. Comics. So it yeah. was the perfect branding because as a kid, that's what you're getting. You're getting the toys, you want to watch yeah. Saturday morning cartoons and read the comic books. It was brilliant.
1: Right. And, and you know in in the comic books there was ads for the cartoons and stuff like that <laughs> and, the, and the toys um uh it, it was it was just like bombardment really um but then I was like you know what has changed nothing I mean like it's gotten even more pervasive as as it's gone on like it hasn't really at no point did we really were we able to pull back the reins at all on this once we let it was like a Pandora's box yeah. right once we let that out of the box, it was off to the races and it's still like, you know, not something that can really be contained anymore.
0: And I'm assuming based on the conversation we've had so far over there I assume you and I are fairly close in age, but I'm it's wondering probably, too, yeah. I'm thinking that. Uh, Saturday morning cartoons went away. What about 10 years ago with the invention of cartoon network? It's like, yeah, we don't need right. them on Saturday morning, but I, and not in a, Hey, get off my lawn kind of way. But I really feel like we had that golden age of Saturday morning cartoons and the breakfast cereals and playing with the toys, riding our bikes. I don't feel like there are toys out there for kids now, certainly not marketed the same way, but my, like I've got nephews. They're not excited about a specific toy brand. It's like, Oh, this is a shark. Oh, this is a robot. They don't care about, well, you the know brand. what? Um-
1: I think um, we were kind of um, of one of the last generations, like before the internet and before um, um, when things got completely uh, separated into categorized categories, categories, Um, and we kind of like were of this last generation where we were still being broadcast to, and like everybody just watched this one. TV, sh- you know, ch- you know there's three channels that showed ca- cartoons, but you know, it was a very um, you know, uh, wide reaching experience, because there was not as many choices as there are now. Now, you know, there's a million, th- you know, obviously there's a lot of toys and stuff and properties that are popular, but at the same time, like, my sons uh, are six and two years old, and both of them have, like, their own little interests of Weird things that they found on YouTube, like all on their <laughs> own. You know what I mean? Which yeah. completely directed, direct, at, at like there's very specific interests. Whereas when we were kids, it was like, you got to watch, you know, Smurfs or Chipmunks or, uh, you know, some other Muppet Babies or whatever it is. And that's it, really. <laughs> like, yeah. you, can't, you can only flip so much. And there's really not that much else. And so we all got to experience pretty much the same thing. Um, in a way that, um, has only become fractionalized over, you know, the last bunch of years with cable and the internet and and more and more so every day.
0: And as I was reading the book, you were kind of sending me a PDF copy and I was, I wasn't sure what to expect if it was like a, a, like a, an interview based, but because you're an illustrator and a cartoonist, obviously it's, it's like reading a comic book that tells this entire story going all the way back to world war one propaganda, um, and it was fascinating to have that bit of detail and kind of how it led into with the stuff we 're seeing in the eighties and seventies and eighties with the federal trade commission the f c c and things like that as well uh we you know you mentioned historic people like you know, George Lucas, who came up with the idea of Star Wars, his marketing thing he did with Kenner, Jim Shooter, how he partnered with Hasbro to give us G.I. Joe and things like that. But was, was there ever any kind of a concept of like, I should reach out to some of these people and talk to them? Or do you kind of already know this is the format I want the book to follow?
1: Oh, so I talked to a few people here. And there. I mean, obviously, it's not very easy to get in touch with like George Lucas. and talk to Sure. Yeah. But um, <laughs> a lot of the um, writers and stuff. Um, for GI Joe and, and Hasbro and stuff are still around like, um, you know, Flint Dilley and, um, you know, Larry Hama, yeah. you know, it was still around to talk about like his, his, you know, what he did in for GI Joe and, and stuff like that. It's it a really interesting guy, Larry Hama.
0: Oh my gosh. Incredibly.
1: Yeah. And he, uh, you know, he, he did, you know, the one point that he makes and it's a very important point is that, and he he's like had you know he's 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 talked about having you know uh, ethical difficulties doing it even because he's a veteran is that he would depict GI Joe and no one there would be lots of violence and and gunfire and no one ever got hurt yeah um, and they never portrayed like the the you know the, the bad, you know with the horrible side of, of violence and war um, and it was like the safe kind of thing and. Yeah, that was on TV a lot (laughs) where I remember watching, you know, GI Joe and like, they never, there'd be late. They shot lasers, not, not bullets, but there was laser fire like all around them in every (laughs) direction. They would never, no one could hit anybody.
0: Right. You'd always Uh, see whenever the sky striker, a Cobra rattler exploded, you always see the parachute. They'd get out safe.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, so, I mean, that was, that was very interesting. Um, and you know, um, the, the, the writers were the, the, the writer for Transformers, Ron Friedman, was like a super interesting guy. Um,
0: Just had him on the show two weeks ago, actually. Uh, did you? <laughs> super fascinating.
1: fascinating. Yeah, yeah. He um, you know, there's these great interviews with him on YouTube that are all about like his philosophies on, on how these things came about and how he wrote about, you know, how he wrote about things and you know, his, he, you know, <laughs> when they decided to kill us in prime, Ron Friedman was like, that's going to be bad. <laughs> you know, right. like he knew, <laughs> you know, um, because he is like an, a, a, a very, a veteran writer, especially at that point. He had, he'd oh, yeah. been writing on TV for like 20 years, at least since that. by that point. Um, and he's a really brilliant guy. And, um, you know, it, it, but you know, it's like, without a guy like Ron Friedman, who did an amazing job, that could have been a much worse show. (laughs) No, absolutely. It could have been much, much worse, but um, you know, there's still a lot of things you can go back and look at and criticize at this point. Um, But, but really it's less about the content of the show and more about like the 24 seven commercials for the sports.
0: Now, when Um, you're looking into this, uh, when you're writing this, because you mentioned one of the chapters in the books, talk about the He-Man focus testing I was in one of those focus testing groups. I remember my mom took me up to Village Square here in Hazelwood. Uh, we went in and they took my mom into a room. We're asking her questions. They let me play with a bunch of the open He-Man toys. They had it was the very first wave, so I had He-Man, Ram-Man, what? Skeletor. And then at the end of the thing, for me, they they were asking me questions like, "Do you like to make up your own adventures, or do you like to parrot the adventures that you see?" in the tv series and i remember the questions vividly and at the end they said you can take any two figures you want so i had a mint on card ram man and a mint on card trap jaw that i took home with me and of course i ripped what? them open immediately but i remember yeah. specifically the focus <laughs> testing group and it was fascinating to look back that's and crazy. think that's what they were doing
1: yeah that's wild that's amazing too like imagine imagine it's so funny was like i had a battle beast when i was like six that is, like, extremely rare. Yeah. <laughs> like, now it would be worth so much money. <laughs> and I'm like, I had, I, and I thought, I, when I was a kid at six, because I thought it was, like, a bad thing. Like, it was because it was, like, a, it had a different, different, uh, it had a sun as the chest thing. Yeah. And I was like, what's a sun? Like, what how did I, how did I get this, like, broken one? <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, it was, like, extremely rare collectible items.
0: Yeah, uh, um, I always say if I if I'd kept all the toys I had when I was a kid, right now I could retire at this point.
1: Honestly, like if you, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, there's there there might be a way to like actually just buy a bunch of the most popular toys all the time, and just for like a decade or, or more. But after like 15 years, that's going to start paying off. <laughs> right. <the>
0: It, it it was something about the toys then too because I feel like toys nowadays they like we've got the toys made for the adult collector by like McFarlane Toys puts out these oh, sure. super detailed pieces but then I I know even in the 90s they would put out waves of toys because uh, I was still collecting in my college days because you know I'm a, I have, I've never grown up but like the Iron They're Man bad. figures that were based on the Marvel Comics Action Hour which Ron Friedman wrote a lot of those scripts again um, mm-hmm. you'd get hawkeye or u.s agent were a chase figure you'd like one figure for every three cases would be a u.s agent figure in there so they kind of still marketed there for kids but we're still kind of got our eye on those adults who kind of are still wanting certain action figures we'll talk more about that right after this commercial break if you'd like to text us your thoughts, if you were part of a He-Man focus group, go and shoot us a text to 84126. Chat more with Brian Box Brown. After this, you're listening to geek to me Radio on the big 550 KTRS. Please stand by.
2: This is Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman. You're listening to geek to me Radio.
0: You are listening to geek to me Radio, and I'm your host, James Enstall, heard every Sunday night here on the Big 550 KTRS. We'll make sure we tell you about our comic book sponsor, Bugs Comics and Games. Just had a chat with Larry today, saw him at the Toy Man Toy Show. Saw a few of you out there as well. Thank you to everyone who came out. To say hello and uh, pick up some goodies. Hopefully you all found some stuff that you were wanting for your collection. Uh, Larry owns Bugs Comics and Games, the official comic book sponsor of this show. It's the place where I go to get my comic books. If you are getting comic books, maybe you haven't gotten comic books lately. Maybe due to the pandemic, your local store closed. A lot of brick-and-mortar stores did. Uh, during the pandemic, never opened back up. Well, if you're looking for a new comic book store, Larry and Bugs Comics and Games would love to be your new comic book store. Check them out on Bryan Road in O'Fallon, Missouri, right there between the page extension or Highway 70. Easily accessible from either way. If you get out there, if you want new issues, back issues, toys, games, we're talking with Brian Box Brown about toys. He's got a lot of toys out there. He's got some Buffy toys. He's got some Funko Pops. He's got a lot of games. Kids books, all ages books, that's important. If you're thinking, that, oh, well, I want my kids to get into it, but I don't want to no, He's got a lot of kids books. I was just there with my brother-in-law and uh, nephews, and we were looking around and stuff, and they got some books for themselves. They're, they're a fan of the Spider-Man comics and all the stuff like that so get out there check out larry at bugs comics and games if you don't know where to start ask him it's like having your own personal comic concierge he's super knowledgeable and he'll guide you in exactly the way to go with what you're looking for you're selling a collection you're wanting to buy books new books back issues join the avengers club and save money on your hobby that's a great way to save some money in this economy when we're all getting by as it is bugs comics and games give them a like on facebook Budge Comics and Games on Facebook, the official comic book sponsor of Geek to Me Radio. Going back to our conversation with Brian Box Brown, we were talking to him about his book, The He-Man Effect. And right before we took that last break, we were talking to him about the 90s toys, how they used to package, they'd short package certain figures. And it kind of make you, you know, I, I drove to four or five different stores trying to find like an Iron Man U.S. agent figure from the Iron Man animated series line and how they kind of, uh, they, the toy companies kind of were doing that for the adult collectors at the time.
1: Before I was like studying their business model, I was like, really what they want it is to reel kids into bigger and bigger stuff. Like, you start off with buying a figure. Ultimately, they want you to buy a Castle Grayskull yeah, or, you know, a G.I. Joe. They want you to buy a, a, a freaking battleship that would be like the size of a refrigerator. <laughs>
0: Or the uh, the space defiant complex that they had. Yeah. That was the yeah. other big toy they had. Man, it was, I, I was lucky enough to get the USS flag. My mom got it for me on my birthday. Sears surplus had it marked down to like sixty bucks. So I had to chip right. it. I had to chip in like half of it, and she bought me the rest of it for my birthday. So I was that the one kid who actually ended up getting that. It was such a cool place. I regret getting rid of that more than anything.
1: Oh my god, it was so huge. I, I mean, I only ever saw. I never saw it. I only ever saw the box. I remember seeing like a stack of the boxes at Bradley's, right, which was, which was like uh, you know Target back in the day, and uh, and uh, it was I was just blown away. I was like the box was so big, like the yeah, it's like it was huge. Like, it wouldn't fit in the, the cart that we used in the day.
0: My mom had to get my uncle to come over because she had a car. Like, wow, well, we need a truck. So my uncle had to come pick it up from us at Sears Surplus. Sure, <laughs> need a flat truck. You need to rent a truck from, from uh, Home Depot to get it. <laughs> when looking at this book, too, the He-Man effect that you've got out, um, were there, are there something that we should learn? Is this kind of just, did you mean this just be kind of a look back and as a, hey, this is what we went through, kind of a historical thing? Or is it, would you define it as a bit of a cautionary tale to not fall into the same pit traps going forward? I think
1: so. When I was, um, when I was a kid, there was a, sh- a show on HBO, um, directed towards kids, but it was called buy me that. And it was, um, it was, a uh, explained how commercials worked and, and like how they made like the uh, McDonald's made like their cheeseburger look really good, like on TV. And then you get, you know, then you go buy it and it doesn't look the same. Yeah. And, um, and it was really interesting to me. I really liked it, but I think it it was actually a really great thing for a kid to see because, you know, you know, having that knowledge, uh, of that you're being sold to and being aware of that is, uh, I think something that can help, you know, I mean, there's, I don't think there's, you're going to read this book and then be like, that's it. I'm putting all my collectibles (laughs) in the trash. I'm never buying anything ever again. Um, like I don't, first of all, I, I, don't think trying to rid yourself of the feeling of nostalgia would be by getting rid of your stuff. It would be, you know, a fool's errand because nostalgia is a, you know, a human emotion that serves some sort of evolutionary purpose. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it would be like saying, I'm never going to laugh again or something like that. Um, but also at the same time, like, you know, the other day my son was watching uh, YouTube um, and, you know, they have commercials in, in, before each video. And mm-hmm. I, I, one of them came on and it was like a 12 minute long commercial for a toy that like looked exactly like a cartoon. And I was like, this is exactly the thing. (laughs) This is, if I was, if I was like not paying attention, my son would be sitting there watching, uh, advertisement for 12 minutes and then, um, you know, probably want to buy the thing, you know? So I think it's just good to be aware of like what's going on and potentially, um, you know, it's helpful as a parent to understand, uh, like what's going on. And I think that, um, you know, it's also an, an attempt to kind of uh, explain kind of what's going on with the uh, kind of uh, off the deep end side of uh, fandom uh, in our current day culture, and kind of like why are people so? You know, you see stuff in the news, and you're you're like, oh, this actor was bullied off the off of a uh, of, of a movie and things like that, right? And, you know, there's an, there. Are people are are baffled, like what's going on. I think, you know, I think this book is an attempt to kind of try to uh, do like a post-mortem on stuff like that. Like, why this? Where did this behavior come from?
0: Yeah, it's interesting how the internet has now added a new layer to what your book talks about that we experienced in the uh, in the '80s with advertising and all the stuff that the internet's added a brand new layer because oh, sure. we're getting input from people who you never would have heard from. We have that direct contact. You and I contacted each other via Twitter, for example. But they've got like, I think the incident you may be referring to is the actress who played Rose Tycho in Last Jedi was bullied off Twitter. And Mm -hmm. her action figures did not sell. Like you'd see masses of those action figures on the shelf because they felt that she ruined the franchise, which, you know, that's kind of a ridiculous statement to say. Uh, right. That one actor can ruin a whole franchise, but it was really the writing. But let's not go there. Uh, <laughs> talking about uh, how the internet has affected things too. And like you said, now it's all YouTube, where you're, you know, it, there are algorithms. It's not like an exact kind of hitting you with a fire hose to advertise to mom, dad, and you because they don't know who's watching. Right. The algorithms right. pick up on this is a kid watching these based on the videos. So let's show him things like this, which is almost scarier. We're going to talk more about the algorithms with ryan box brown as we wrap up our interview right after this you're listening to big 550 ktrs this is geek to me radio please stand by
1: hey this is Adassa, and even though we don't talk about bruno we do talk about geek to me radio
0: One thing we do want to talk about is the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau. That's discoverstcharles.com to you. Discover St. Charles uh, always has something going on out there in beautiful downtown St. Charles. If you haven't been out there lately, I mean, it's just the weather is going to be perfect coming up here so make sure you get out take a nice leisurely stroll along the cobblestones have some fun i happen to know for a fact that the legends and lanterns festival they just did a bunch of their pictures for the festival coming up so you can get the collectible books and meet all your friends like Abigail Williams, and of course, Lizzie Borden, the Queen of Hearts, uh, Phantom of the Opera will be out there. Of course, the Brothers Grimm, all sorts of spooky people you can interact with the last three weekends of October. It's a great festival, especially if you enjoy the fall season as much as I do. But even if that's not your thing, if you maybe want just want to go out and get some nice food, maybe hit some cool shops, Check out the City of St. Charles. You may be listening from out of town. You may not be as far away as Adassa, but, you know, maybe you're a little farther out and you want to go someplace new. Start your trip at the website, discoverstcharles.com. Plan your trip. Come and check it out. Whether you want to have a camping excursion, a little bed and breakfast adventure, or maybe you want a five-star hotel with world-class accommodations, City of St. Charles has something for every taste, every budget, and you will not... Be disappointed. Once again, the website discoverst.charles.com. If you haven't looked at the website yet, go check it out. They're always changing it and it looks great right now. They put a lot of work into it. Once again, discoverst.charles.com. As we always say, it's an historically good time. Wrapping up my conversation with Brian Box Brown, we've we're just talked about how the algorithm on YouTube really targets people nowadays for uh, whatever they might be searching for. It's a little bit more insidious than the old advertising used to be for TV.
1: Yeah, it is. I mean, it, they've gotten more and more like better at it. Yeah, really, and more and more efficient at uh, doing these things. So it, it is. It's, it's you know, the back then was like training wheels, kind of like they were. Right. You know, still so they were still still doing like physical, um, you know, like like we said earlier, physical uh, interviews with children and stuff to try to figure out what they want. Now, you know there's kind of like all these metrics that right. they just know right away. They don't even really need to have that type of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's kind of like established uh, it, it, in some, for some businesses, this is like established part of their, you know, business plan. It's to mind there. I was thinking about Disney's um, uh, re-releases of old uh, cartoons as live action films. Oh. And how um how how that was just such a, a a a nostalgia grab for adults to to try to 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 take a cartoon which is you know, um historically for children and turn it into a live action movie which historically would be for an adult, but it's the same story. So those kids have that like twenty, thirty year old nostalgia commercial marketing things stuck inside of them. So it's an attempt to extract more money
0: from them. It. Yeah. It's, um, I'm, I'm totally the, the remakes that, that it's not that I'm not sure if the nostalgia in that aspect has no effect on me. Cause I love Disney right. stuff, but I hate the double dipping cash grab. It's like, okay, we know this story. Let's get something new, uh, which right. I had the, the beauty right. and the beast, the lion King air quotes, live it's action, true. little mermaid. I'm like, ah, oh, come on
1: it's endless, the rebooting and stuff, but, um, you know, uh, it's kind of always been like that. Uh, if you think about like Snow White was Disney's first big movie and it was not, it was like a Grimm's fairy tale or something, you know what I mean? It was a, without the beheading. uh, Yeah. It was an old (laughs) work that he was re, you know, rebooting, you know, a bunch of his stuff was like that early on. Um, and even like, you know, um, the stuff like in the 50s and 60s with cowboys becoming uh, this big thing in uh, TV and, and movies you know <clears throat> that was kind of a reboot of these old cowboy books from like the turn of the century um, so it kind of like is as it always was we're constantly rebooting and relooking at these things that people liked when they were children and, and we re them again when we we're older <laughs> it's just like a, a fact of life in a way
0: and talking about reexamining stuff when we're older. I know we're coming up on the end of our time. I won't keep you too much longer, but I'm curious your thoughts because now it seems like uh, the 80s kids like us who, you know, we like to go back. And if, like you mentioned it, I just went to Terrific Con. You were at the convention in Chicago. Hey, vintage He-Man figures. Hey, look at the original Star Wars Imperial shuttle that's in the box. Oh my gosh. But now these companies like Super 7 are re-releasing a huge, like massive, bigger than the USS flag aircraft carrier from GI Joe cat's lair that they're marketing wow. to people like us now. And oh
1: yeah. Oh, big business on, on the stuff now, because especially now, because we as a generation now have the money, right? When, when we were kids, we didn't have like, we just had <laughs> to ask our parents for money. And like you said, be like, save up $30 for, for months and, and get your mom to pay for half of it to kind of just get anything. And now, you know, we're all in our 40s and we have the people have stable jobs and stuff and, and, and expo- expendable income. And, you know, there's there's latent advertising stuck inside of them that can be exploited. I mean, look, like, uh, if you look at like Funko Pop, that's kind of like their whole oh. entire
0: place.
1: <laughs> exactly. You know,
0: yeah, it, it's one of the uh, Brian Broke. Uh, sorry, let me try that again. Brian Volkwies, who's the guy behind the Toys That Made Us, the Movies That Made Us, who runs the Nasale Toy Company, he just came out with uh, the RoboForce toys that he got the license for, he's producing. So he's a toy collector. If you see pictures of his toy collection online, it it makes me insanely jealous. But he's, again, he's, he understands he's kind of tapping into that with the productions he does on Netflix, with the toy lines oh, yeah. he's licensing and putting back out. But I think it's just, for whatever reason, that nostalgia has such a hold over people it's it really it's does. amazing.
1: I mean, it's very powerful in, in the book. You know, it talks about how far it goes. I mean, if you think about a lot of political slogans, um, a lot of them are focused on nostalgia. I mean, you know, in, in a way, like all of conservatism, is nostalgia and, and, and a lot of liberalism, too, about, about going back to something that was better um, that may have never existed. But, you know, it's tapping into that feeling of nostalgia.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a a powerful drug. I just watched an episode of Remington steel last night where the killer talks about, you know, the effects of nostalgia being a powerful drug. And then here we are today having this conversation. So they knew it back in, they knew it back in the sixties and they knew it uh, in the eighties and we're still feeling the effects of that today. Again, the book is the He-Man effect how American toy makers sold you your childhood. Brilliant book. A lot of fun to read. It's a quick read with all the illustrations and uh, people want to keep up with you, find out more about your stuff, I know the website is boxbrown.com. Where else can people keep up with you, Brian?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter uh, as uh, BoxBrown. Uh, I'm also uh, on Instagram as BoxBrown. And on Blue Sky as BoxBrown. Perfect. <laughs> so, all those places.
0: And if you're interested, uh, for those of you listening after the fact, scroll down to the bottom of the page. We'll have a link to where you can get Brian's book in the show notes. But obviously, we always, always, always recommend try to get it from your local bookstore and support those businesses. Brian Box Brown, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for the chat. Thank you so much for having me on. There he goes a uh, great guy and a really cool book if you're if you're an 80s kid like I am it's a it's a must read. It's just so cool to see all the behind the scenes stuff and how they did that to us how they sold us our childhood and our toys. my thanks to Brian Box Brown for the interview. We're gonna take another quick commercial break. We're gonna come right back my interview with legendary storyteller Louise Simonson. You're listening to Geek to me radio on the big 550 KTRS please stand by.
2: Attention, maggots! This is Sergeant Slaughter from WWE and GI Joe, the real American hero. And you're listening to Geek to Me. Don't touch that dial, and that's an order. G.I. Joe.
0: Had to play that return liner because today is Sergeant Slaughter's birthday. If you've never met him before, you got to go to a convention just to experience the Cobra Clutch I just posted on Twitter. If you're following me at geek Me Radio, a picture of him putting me in the Cobra Clutch. Uh, such a great guy. If you ever get a chance to meet him, I highly recommend you do. Happy birthday, Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, we have a brand new sponsor I want to tell you about. I'm excited to talk to you about Citizens Debt Relief. Uh, money is something that some people just like to brush aside. They don't want to deal with it. It's a problem, especially in this economy. Um, a lot of people right now, it's a known fact, people are relying heavily on their credit cards to get them by. It's a real problem for a lot of people, and hand in the air, I've been one of those people. Sometimes it's like, ah, I get paid on Friday. You know what? I'm just going to put the groceries or the gas on the credit card. After a while, that can really start to add up. Citizens Debt Relief, and you people know I would not be telling you about a company that I didn't use myself, I did not believe in, and I didn't think were actually someone who could help. If you're someone out there and you're listening right now and you've got at least $10,000 in credit card or unsecured debt, give them a call. I'm going to give you the number. It's a special number they have for my listeners, so they'll know you heard about it here on the my radio show. Toll-free, 877-811-1350. 39, Citizens Debt Relief, they're going to come up with a customized strategy based on your bills, your debt, what you're able to pay, how you want to go about doing it. It's a custom debt resolution plan. Now, just just to be clear, this is not a magic bullet. You didn't get into debt overnight. You're not going to get out of it overnight, just like you might want to go to the gym. Hey, I want a really nice body. It's not going to happen overnight. you got to put in the work. Same thing here. So it's not a magic bullet solution, but I'm, I, I, I will tell you again, I'm in the program. I'm working on it. I'm getting myself out of debt the right way. It's not an easy way, but I'm going to be so glad. I've been in it for a little over a year now, and I got to tell you, the peace of mind it brings after you get past that hump of "Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is this going to work?" and you realize, "Oh, this works." So take it from me. I'm telling you, the average debt these people I was talking to the team there, uh, Michael and some of the other people, and they were saying the average debt, the average person brings them twenty four thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. So you may think you're bad off, like, oh my gosh, I'm I'm in the hole. This is horrible. I got like 60000 dollars worth of credit card debt I racked up over the past thirty years. You may be in a situation like that. Give them a call. It can't hurt you anything to get a consultation. Eight seven seven. 811 1339 they're trust pilot accredited they're better business bureau accredited you know you get those flyers in the mail all the time they're like oh we got $74,000 a loan for you we'll help you out you know interest payments blah it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff they just send you and it's a lot of junk i don't trust those things i gave these people i talked to them i got a friend who works for the company he's the one who kind of warmed me up i gave it a shot dipped my toe in the water i'm happy they're good people they will take care of you Give them a call, 877-811-1339. You can check them out online as well, citizensdebtrelief.com. We're going to have them on the show here for a little while, so we'll talk to you about them each week, and uh, hopefully they can give you some help with your credit card debt. We've got Louise Simon said I went to Trivicon, and I know you guys heard me talk about Trivicon last month in the lead-up we had Mitch Halleck, the owner and operator, on. It's honestly, hands down, my favorite convention. I'm not even going to say top three. Mitch puts on a great show. It's my favorite convention in the country. A lot of great talent. It was so busy. I didn't normally I come back with like four or five interviews for you. I could barely get Louise Simonson because she had a crowd at her table. The interview you're about to hear is uh, almost 17 minutes. It took me about 45 to get the interview because we had to keep pausing. People came up and wanted to sign books. Hey, I've got this X Factor. I've got this New Mutants. So she was very kind. So sweet. Her and Walt uh, Simonson, obviously great artist and writer himself. Uh, We got to talk to them both, but I only got the interview with Louise. Hopefully I can get them both on the show going on a little later down the road we'll see how that turns out but right now enjoy my interview with the uh one of the greatest storytellers louise simonson talking with master storyteller louise simonson all the stuff you've done one of the things that struck me was you've gotten to see a lot of the characters you created on the big screen with cable and steel and all these different characters when you had that moment is there anything like well I would have done this differently or are you just glad to see them up there um, both okay
2: you know it's nice to see them up there it's actually flattering that anybody wants to make a movie with a grown-ups want to pretend to be your character that you made up yeah um, there are with <laughs> a number of characters several characters that I've done. And I know your readers listeners, listeners will know which ones they are. They will be able to take a, an educated guess at that. that really I wish maybe things had been done a little differently, maybe mm. with costuming or choice of different other things yeah. like maybe scripts or whatever. <laughs> um, but mostly it's nice to it, that at least the things you make up have a life beyond what you put down you know you this is kind of what we all do in comics when you're in a shared universe is you create an idea and the idea takes on a life of its own mm-hmm. i mean it has in comics i think people i made up 40 45 years ago you know are now in the movies yeah. and they're you know they they they've gone on to have very strange lives in some cases um, in in the comics themselves. And, I mean, that's always kind of weird and miraculous and, and wonderful. And, some, you know, sometimes people do terrible things to your characters and you go, oh, God, no. <laughs> and then you remember all the terrible things you did to other people's characters, like rip their wings off or, you know, kill them and they're, they're dead right. or whatever. And then you say, oh, well, these things happen. Yeah. It's comics, they get better, you know.
0: I know Stan was very protective, like when he... I was at the convention at Dragon Con when he found out that Captain America did the Hail Hydra thing, and he goes, somebody get me a phone, i got to call. Did, did, he, did he take you to task for ripping off Warren's wings at
2: all or anything like that? Nope. Nope. I think everybody... We, we, there were the the angel adherents, a few of those, who loved him the way they... You know, they loved him as a pretty playboy. Yeah. Most of the people really loved Archangel. They loved the fact that he was a little darker. They loved that he had these wings that screamed as he flew and that ching, you know, he would throw throw blades from his wings. They loved that. So, um...
0: If you have a funnel-off with Grace Caroline Curry, this is your
2: last call. Okay. They, they They loved that... He had become a more complex character.
0: Yeah. And with all the characters you've written, you've had some where you get to kind of like power pack, for example, straight out of the gate, this is your book. Right. Other ones you've come into and inherited right. like X Factor New Mutants. And then there's the whole editor aspect where you're used to kind of nudging writers, I would assume. When, when you think about your role as an editor... What was, what was kind of your thing just to make sure the trains ran on time, or did you... Or was...
2: It was to make sure that the people I worked with had what they needed to do the best job that they possibly could, and different people needed different things. Some people just needed you to listen to their ideas and maybe cheer louder for the ones that you liked the best, because mm-hmm. um, I had a number of writers who had a lot of ideas, and... Some of the ideas, of course, are going to be better than other ideas. So you just go, yay, really loud for the ones that you love. And then since we all work for our own little pieces of cheese, that really helps steer the story. Um, But I never have a heavily handed, sort of soft steered, I guess, encourage the story (laughs) to go in one direction or another. Um, You know, some people, you know, would need know, would need a little bit more steering, would need, you know, to be paired with people that they were compatible with. I mean, there were a lot of different requirements, you know, that an editor would have. People need to get paid.
0: Sure, yeah.
2: Um, so that, you know, once you choose, my idea, honestly, was to choose the very best. I, I tried to choose people whose work I loved. Yeah. And then help them do whatever they needed to do their very best. And it really worked.
0: And you've worked with so many great artists, obviously, you're married to one of them. I am. And then you've worked with, obviously, Rob Liefeld, and when he came in and kind of reimagined New Mutants and everything like that, did you have, I find every artist has a certain storyteller and vice versa, that there's automatically, oh, a really good connection, where just simpatico. Who were the artists who you felt the most, I guess, uh, simpatico with?
2: Oh, probably, gosh, June Brickman. Um, you know she she drew power pack yeah. she, oh, she came yeah, into yeah. my office just cold looking for work yeah, yeah, yeah. and I think it was the first or second job she had had mm. was power pack Wow um, but could she I she came in and I said I I didn't have anything for her but I liked her work and I said can you draw kids and she said oh yeah I used to do sketches at six flags of kids is for a job and um, I said well Here's what I'm going to do, and I explained what Power Pack was. I had in her the first script and the character, you know, verbal character designs for the kids. You know, really who they were, not so much what they looked like. And I said, you know, draw these kids for me, and if they look right. The job. We'll, we'll present ourselves as a team, mm-hmm. and she came back with these wonderful little drawings, um, where in, in which the kids were more themselves even. Yes. So we presented ourselves to Shooter, and Shooter said, "Your team." You know, we. He said, he had said to me, "It's a weird idea. Maybe we'll get a miniseries out of it. Just write something up." And I did, and Shooter loved it, and he came in and said, "It's not a miniseries. It's a series." The first issue is going to be a double-sized issue, and you have two months to finish it. And June had never actually drawn a comic before. Oh, wow. And I had never written a long comic before. I'd done some short stories, but never a long comic. Yeah. So that was, and that was so, I mean, June and I were, were real, I thought we were really good on that book. And it, got, it was very successful for its time and its place and what it was, which is weird. Um, <laughs> and I loved working with John Badenov. Oh sure, yeah. He's—I mean, I have worked with John on Power Pack, and then I worked with him again on Superman. He was—he's one of my absolute favorites as an artist. He does power and he does emotion, and those are the two things that I think you—you you really need in a superhero story. Yeah. Um, and aside from the fact that he draws beautifully and you know composes well and stuff, and um, Brett Levins. i loved yes. working with Brett. Brett is he was a supposed sweetheart. to be here. I was
0: so sad to find out he canceled. I know.
2: I um, know. He. He he was another one. He was a prodigy. I worked with him first as an editor on Dark Crystal. I mean, he kind of came into my office and he, I think he was probably 20 years old, maybe, 2021. 20, you know, with, this, with this, this really beautiful art style that matured more and more and more as he got older. I mean, yeah. I've worked with Brett off and on for years now, as, as, I, have, as I have with John and June too. Yeah. I mean, those, those were my. I guess they're my favorite, aside from Walter Bill. Let's not leave Walter Right, of out course, of this. yes. But I mean, he, we're married to him, so it yeah. doesn't really, you I'm know, so ha- it goes without I'm, saying. I'm so used to him <laughs> and his brilliance that it, you know, I can hardly wax poetic about it because I'm so used to him. <laughs> I mean, everything he does is wonderful.
0: Um, One of the things I was going to think about is that when you did the Fall of the Mutants, that whole storyline, that was one of the the crossovers. It must have been very complex. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Chris Claremont, or was you you suggested there should be a tie-in to all the books, and Chris relented and said, yes, let's do this.
2: Yeah, probably. (laughs) Um, What happened was Chris had a great idea for Fall of the Mutants. Well, it was a great idea. There were someone, maybe Paul Smith, I don't remember who had done it now, had drawn... A lot of mutants in the alley, which is where the Morlocks lived. Um, and Chris had envisioned that there were, you know, a few dozen, not a few hundred. Mm-hmm. So he said, "So we'll just kill a batch of them off." And I said, "Oh, fun! Can I play too? <laughs> <laughs> I want to kill Morlocks." So, so Chris said, and also the Chris said, "Yeah, sure, great." Also. The books were to come out in the fall, and it had been the received knowledge that you could not sell comics in the fall because at the time it, kids are going back to school. I mean, there were more. There was a larger kids market now. I think there's a larger adult market yeah. then, But back then, there was a lot more kids who were reading comics, and you so that the comic sales always went down in the fall, and you couldn't sell them. And I said, yeah, with the right book, you can sell them. So I said, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> we'll call it Follow the Mutants. And look, fall, ha, right, play on words, yeah. right? Oh, clever. <laughs> and um, it sold tremendously, and which proved that, yes, you can sell um, comics in the fall. And um, the next year, Shooter said, oh, we, we had other people. It was not a required thing. It was you could play if you wanted to play this is what what's happening if you want to play in your books that's fine and if you don't that's fine it's not a requirement so um yeah i did really well the next year shooter came to us and said okay you're going to do another fall issue miniseries and this is my idea and we said no no jim we already have an idea we know what we're going to do Oh, that was mutant ma- after Mutant Massacre. That was Follow the Mutants. Okay. That's the next one. Yeah. Follow the Mutants. And that was because we didn't want to do Jim's idea. We wanted to do our idea. We didn't have an idea. I was lying through my team. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but, I mean, we all had events coming up that we thought we could call Follow the Mutants. Yeah. So um, that was where an angel got his wings ripped mm-hmm. off. And we, we killed poor Doug in The New Mutants. Yes. And I'm still hearing about 40 years later, I'm still I'm getting complaints about poor Doug. They who, brought him
0: back, so... He,
2: of course they did. He had the transmode virus, for God's sakes. Right. There is no reason in the world why he wouldn't have come back. So, except I, I heard the story, I don't know if it's true, that Bob Harris hated um, Doug so much... That he actually made, uh, he wanted whoever was doing the book then to go down into the ground and see Doug's skeleton in the coffin to prove that Doug was actually really dead and he couldn't come back. I don't know if that's true. That was a story that I had been told. I feel like they did that later
0: in Excalibur, and Kitty Pride actually went down in there. That unless was,
2: oh, that would have been Kitty would have been yeah. able to do it. Yeah, yeah sure. I mean, I, I at that point I was like, oh, I'm doing Superman. Thanks, bye. And I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> but this this is something somebody told me. I guess it's true. I love that. I love it was in an Excalibur and that you know, yeah. Kitty did it. So yeah, they proved that he was dead. But of course, nobody's dead in comics. Right. Never. And um, and then we we were we had been working toward Inferno. So the next big crossover was Inferno, and that was... And I mean, each of these were you can play if you want to, but you don't have to.
0: And Inferno wasn't Jim's idea. Inferno that was, was you our all idea. Up. Oh, Chris yeah. and I had
2: been working toward that for okay. three years. Yeah. So um, so that was that was how that happened.
0: And I we've didn't... got you here at this con. You people keep coming up, bringing up comic books. It's got to be like a walk down memory lane, especially when you've got all your contemporaries. You're staying next to Al Milgram. Chris was right over there. Yeah, those are Brett all my pals. Greeting. My
2: old pals from, <laughs> from from however many years, 40 years ago.
0: It's 10 or 20, I think. <laughs> I to say. But I'm curious, when, when people come up, is are there things that because you've written so much, you've edited so much, I forgot about this particular oh, yeah. book. Does that happen a lot? or It
2: happens occasionally where people will bring up things to me. And I'll say, I don't... I mean, if they're part of a regular general series that I did, I usually... Know at least that I worked on them, Um, but there's some, you know, the general weird stuff that you, you know, three issues here, two or four issues there that you do. um, Sometimes they have to prove to me that I was the one who did them. You know, you open it up and you (laughs) see the name there, and it's like, okay, okay, it was me.
0: Chris had said it before in an interview that New Mutants was a bit of a tougher nut to crack, where you worked on both that one and X Factor, and X Factor was just—it seemed like such a breeze. Uh, the story-wise and everything. Did you have the same feeling about New Mutants that he had?
2: Yeah, um, no. It. You mean you mean as far as uh, something that was to be created? Yeah, or? the
0: storytelling itself and the, the creation of, of where to go with this team. That
2: yeah, I think that was a little bit more of, a little bit more difficult in that it wasn't it. It was created because we were told to create something. Rather than it was something that just sprang from our own ideas. Mm -hmm. And it's always harder when somebody tells you what to do. Usually, if you decide to do it, it's because you have a lot of ideas about what you want to do. So I think it was more difficult because of that. Yeah. So, I'll make it short.
0: (laughs) Well, you can make the answer as long as you want. I love hearing from you. So, uh, with being a writer and being an editor, you're seeing all this stuff we mentioned at the very beginning on the big screen and the TV. When you watch this stuff, like I said, you've had a hand in writing some of these stories for these characters. What would, if they if they brought you in, because it feels like this latest series of Marvel stuff is kind of finding its footing, but not landing on solid ground. If they said, Louise Simonson, we want your input, what would you think would write the ship, as it were? What character would you introduce into this world to help steer things along? What would be your advice to the Kevin Fagies and the Disney's who are doing all this?
2: Oh, Lord. Um that is so far beyond my my ability to even make uh, the choices are I'm I'm here I'm sputtering it the choices are so varied, and the possibilities are so endless and I don't know their world comic books and movies aren't the same thing Um, so I don't even know what I would tell them I'd tell them to keep yeah, Ke- to clone Kevin Feige <laughs> and maybe use two or three of him because he really does seem to know what he's doing really well.
0: And is there any of the stories that have impressed you the most, any of the movies that you've been impressed the most by, or Marvel, Disney?
2: Um, we haven't seen them all. Okay. Um, gosh, the Wakanda stuff is cool. Yeah. Um, the Captain America stuff is cool. Cool. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. You know, I like the stuff with a little touch of humor in it. Yeah,
0: sure. And Marvel,
2: and one of the reasons I think that Marvel is so much successful than some of their competition is that they keep it light. It's, you know, it's it's a roller coaster, and some of the other darker movies that we've seen have been elevator drops.
0: Right. Right.
2: Um, and, and the Marvel stuff, even when there's drama and everybody dies, there are things to laugh at as well. Yeah. And the colors are usually bright and cheerful.
0: Yeah. Always helps. Always
2: helps. And um, they're just well done. Yeah. So yay, Fahey. There you go. Keep going.
0: Louise Simonson, I appreciate your time so much. Thanks for being on the
2: air. My pleasure.
0: Such a legend to be able to talk to Louise Simonson. Uh, made my entire con visit. Thank you to Brian Box Brown as well. Check out the He-Man Effect. Uh, We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And thanks to Louise Simonson for her time. Thanks to our sponsors. We have Citizens Debt Relief, CitizensDebtRelief.com, the Greater St. Charles Convention and Visitors Bureau, DiscoverStCharles.com. And, of course... Bugs, Comics, and Games. Give them a like on Facebook. Larry will be very happy. Thank you to all of you, the listeners, for tuning in tonight. Thank you, as always, to my executive producer, Joey V, for making this show sound as good as it does. Hopefully, he'll be back next week with video. Until then, my friends.
2: That's our show.
0: This is geek to me Radio. Thank you, Westchester State. Good night. Hey, kids, are your parents about to buy you a
1: shiny new toy from Amazon?
0: Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play?
1: Well, don't be selfish. Share some of that money with us.
0: bit.ly
1: slash geek to me, bit bit.ly slash geek to me.